Hey, you're listening to Can I Say That? with Brenna and Austin Blaine. Hey friends, it's Brenna Blaine, and this week on the show, we are talking about criticism and judgment, and I don't know if you are like me, but I have struggled a lot with these subjects, especially when it comes to the internet. It seems like the internet has catered and made a way to complain very easily and a way to judge other people very easily, especially because the internet can be so impersonal. We see pictures and captions and little blips of people's lives, but we don't see what's going on behind that. And what I've learned in my own walk is that I'm much more likely to criticize or to judge someone when I don't know their heart. And so, man, I had a lot of questions for our guest, and our guest today is Felicia Masonheimer, and she is a national best-selling author, a Bible teacher, the host of Verity Podcast. She has a blog and shop called Every Woman a Theologian, which I am a huge fan of, and she also has a pretty significant social media following. And so because of all those things put together, but also because of her character and just who she is as a person, what I've seen, what I've read from her, I thought, man, I have to ask her, basically in my own language, how are you not a total jerk on the internet? How are you gracious with people? How do you know when to judge, when not to judge? What type of judgment do we engage in as Christians? And what does criticism have to do with our walk? So this would be a great episode for you guys to grab your Bible if you want to read along some of the passages that we look at today. And I hope you enjoy Criticism and Judgment with Felicia Masonheimer. Let's just start super basic. What is criticism and what is judgment and what are the differences between them? It's a great question. And I think something we need to really think through as believers. So judgment is something that Christians should be doing in the sense that we should be judging right from wrong. We should be judging um, what is biblical, what is unbiblical, using the measure of the core doctrines of our faith to know and discern what aligns with our faith, right? And in Matthew 7, the, the passage where Jesus says, do not judge, that's often thrown at Christians when they try to make a moral judgment about something. He was talking about hypocritical judgment. So make sure that when you are making moral judgments as a Christian, that your life matches up with those judgments, then you'll be in line with both Matthew 7 and the ability to say what is right and what is wrong. Criticism, though, often comes from a place of what I call a critical spirit, a heart that is fault-finding, that is looking for what is wrong. And oftentimes, a critical spirit comes cloaked in language of discernment. So I'm discerning what is true and what is false. But one of the big characteristics of criticism versus actual biblical judgment is that criticism elevates some of those freedom issues or third tier issues, things like modesty or um, celebrating holidays or um, differences of slight differences of theology or, or church worship style, things like that elevates those to the level of a core doctrine. And it kind of makes a practice of finding fault with other believers um, based on those freedom issues. 
And so the difference here is that biblical judgment will definitely be discerning and, and um, focusing on what's true, but it majors in the majors, whereas criticism kind of majors in the minors. With that then, are Christians ever called to be critical? And if so, to what extent? When does being critical become dangerous and unhelpful? Well, I like to make a distinction between a critical spirit and a critical mind. So we should be critical thinkers in that we hold all things up to the measure of the word and even just to the measure of reason and logic to a degree. Like, is this a logical argument? Is there evidence for this? And of course, measuring it against the standard of the word because we're Christians. So does this line up with what we know in scripture? Does this line up with the core doctrines of the church that have been taught throughout 2000 years of history? That's what G.K. Chesterton calls orthodoxy or sound teaching. So in that sense, we should be critical thinkers, but we should not be cultivating a critical spirit. And the difference that I like to give is if we look at 1 John 4, I'm actually going to just pull it up here. I said pull it up, but I actually have a physical Bible. So <laughs> doesn't that tell you where we're at as, <laughs> as a generation? But in 1 John 4, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So in the context here, John is most likely confronting Gnosticism as an ideology, kind of like the precursor to New Age ideology. But the point that I want to make is that we are to discern, we are to be critical thinkers and test the spirit of what we are listening to, reading, watching online. But we don't do so from a standpoint of anger, anxiety, or fear, which is all characteristic of the critical spirit. Instead, according to 1 John 4, 4, we are discerning and testing the spirits from a standpoint of overcoming, from a standpoint of victory and knowing that Christ is greater. And so we don't have to be constantly hunting for what's bad and evil and being critical of fellow believers, but from a state of rest and confidence that the Holy Spirit is at work and in convicting and bringing to light the things he wants to bring to light. Can you give us like just some examples of what that might look like? I think a big thing to look for is when you're, especially online in some of these spaces like Instagram and Facebook, is if someone is repeatedly calling out fellow believers and the things that they're calling them out about are um, some of these third tier issues. And so a third tier issue, like I mentioned earlier, would be things that Christians in the same church can disagree about, but still be in fellowship or Christians can be in the church, but maybe are in two different denominations. An example might be like a Presbyterian church that has Calvinist theology and a Wesleyan church that has Arminian theology. They're both Christians. They adhere to the same core doctrines, but they differ on the how. An example then would be of a critical spirit or of, of 
criticizing from a standpoint of anger, anxiety, or fear would be creating dissension between those two churches based on a disagreement over that doctrine. Calvinism and Arminianism are not core doctrines. They deal with core doctrines, but they're a difference in interpretation. And when we elevate that to the level of a first tier theological issue, and we separate over it, and we are angry and condescending and rude, we aren't speaking the truth in love because we've denied the love part. It might be the truth, but we we need to speak the truth in love, which is what Ephesians says. Then look at 1 Corinthians 13 and say, okay, what's love? How do I speak it? If someone's not doing that, then that should give us pause in whether we follow them or whether we listen to them. And so when we're online, I think it's important to look for that critical spirit. Um, Not look for it, I should say, but perhaps just be aware that it's out there. And if you get that check in your spirit when you're listening to someone like, oh, I'm seeing a lot of anger here. I'm seeing a lot of division here. um, Then maybe take a pause and find someone else to follow and hear, hear from for a while. So do you think the rise of social media has really pushed us as Christians to a place of being more critical daily? I think that it's always been a problem. And I say that from an understanding of church history. Christians have bickered about this stuff since the very beginning. I mean, I'm writing a a little book about Easter right now and the controversy between Christians who celebrated Passover and Christians who celebrated Easter, uh, the difference of a day and a few methodologies, that's been going on since the first century. So (laughs) that's an example of like people fighting over this stuff forever. But I do think when you give people the exposure of a platform and you major in the negative. So we all know negative news travels faster, right? So if you talk about what's wrong or the next false teacher or how bad everything is or um, you know, taking a critical um, approach to these topics, you're going to draw more attention. It's going to travel faster. And that is kind of a, a little bit of a high, I think, for some people to build a platform on what you're against or build a platform on the drama, um, it can kind of be a little bit addicting. So we're going to jump back into criticism in a little bit, but I want to go to judgment. And something that I found interesting is when we asked our audience about judgment, a lot of people said that they believe Christians are called not to judge non-Christians, but are called to judge Christians. And most did a great job and cited 1 Corinthians 5.12 for this. What are your thoughts on this position? Is there a charge to us to call out our brothers and sisters? And then similarly, is there a boundary when it comes to non-believers? I love this question. And so I want to look at 1 Corinthians 5.12 because, because that might help those who don't know what it says. And I'm actually going to back up a little bit and look at verse nine first. Um, in the context of First Corinthians, I, when we we taught through this book with our college ministry at our church, and um, we kind of laughed that this church was a mess. There was so much going on here, um, so much confusion over what the church should look like, and so much. Um, synergistic way of worshiping. They were trying to combine Greek worship and and worship of Jesus together. And that included bringing in sexually immoral practices, which he talks about in this passage. 
So he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy swindlers, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So this is a strong statement, and I think it does give us a good example of how to look at unbelievers versus believers. What Paul's saying here is that people who don't know God, who don't have the Holy Spirit, can't be expected to behave the way the church is supposed to behave. So it's kind of like the woman who is not saved and is sleeping with her boyfriend and gets pregnant and is shamed by Christians for having an out-of-wedlock pregnancy when she doesn't even adhere to the Christian sexual ethic. It's It doesn't make sense. Further, um, in that situation, it's not the pregnancy, it's the premarital sex that was the issue anyway. And so Christians tend to hold a a standard sometimes the church has held a biblical standard to Christian or non-Christians and it has left them wondering like what on earth is going on here all you do is judge me right and i think your audience was correct then in saying we don't take biblical standards and and then walk around and say you're all failing to the world because they need a restoration of the heart first they need a new heart first to be able to fulfill the biblical commands. But that then leaves us looking at what's going on within the church. And this is uncomfortable, but what Paul's saying here is that once you do have that new heart, once you are in the body, you're held to a higher standard and your brothers and your sisters should be able to approach you about this. There's a good way to do this and there's a not so good way to do this. The person in question in 1 Corinthians was in repeated sin openly among the congregation, and the church was doing nothing about it. And so his language is very strong here. Elsewhere, when Paul writes about um, confronting a brother and when other apostles talk about that, they talk about um, restoring someone in a spirit of gentleness. So the goal is, of course, restoration. This situation in 1 Corinthians was an open rebellion. And so I think it was a little bit harsher statement. But our goal should be, yes, hold Christians to the standard of scripture, restore them gently when they stray. But non-Christians, we concentrate on discipling them into the faith first. What are your thoughts on to what degree do we need to step into other people's lives, our brothers and sisters in Christ? Because I think maybe sometimes, and even in my own life, I think I'd hear this and go, oh man, well, I know so-and-so who's a Christian because they wrote a book and they need to be called out. So I'm going to do that on Twitter. Or for maybe someone who's the opposite, who's like, hey, I'm not a pastor, so it's not my job to call my brother or sister out because I don't have the spiritual authority. How do we discern, are we supposed to step into this person's life or not and come aside and say, hey, I think you're sinning and struggling in this way? That's a great question. And I'll be honest, I don't think I have completely processed through 
um, every angle of that because we are in a very unique day and age where you can follow someone and listen to their words without being in their real life. And you feel like you know them, but you actually don't. And so you feel like you can confront them and correct them, but you're not in their real life. So they don't, you don't have this trust with them. And I think we have to kind of separate this into two different types of people. You have Christian leaders who are very visible. At the time of this recording, the Ravi Zacharias news has just come out. It's an example of a Christian leader who was not held accountable um, and things that happened with him and his abuses. Um, and there's a lot of talk now about um, how do we deal with that? How do we hold people like that accountable? But then on the other hand, you have the regular lay Christian who's just in your life. And if it's a lay Christian in your life who you know personally, I think we have to ask, am I a called by God to speak into their life right now? Is the Lord leading me to do this? Um, and B, do I have a close enough relationship and trust with them that they might receive it? I think A is more important than B because sometimes God will call you to speak to someone and maybe even correct someone who you don't have a close relationship with. Um, but the big thing is, is the Lord asking me to speak up right now? Because what can happen is we get this like, you know, an emotional high off correcting. Um, and those of us with a justice oriented personality, I think that's really easy. That's me. I want to correct him. I want to tell him, I'll tell him what's right, you know, but what I've found is that as I have grown in my walk with the Lord and he's worked on that aspect of my personality, that when I am called to speak into someone's life, I don't want to do it. I really don't want to do it. Um, I'm not taking joy from correcting them. It grieves me to correct them, but then the Lord is leading me to do it. And I think that kind of heaviness in your spirit, but then the knowledge that you're supposed to do it kind of is a, it's a guide. Um, it's different person to person, but if you delight in correcting people, there is a problem. I would put it that way. I won't get more into the leaders issue, but I would say Matthew 18 um, talks about confronting a brother. And I think that it looks a little different when the brother is a visible leader. And Scott McKnight talks about it in his book, A Church Called Tove. So that might be a good resource for more on that. When you've received correction in your own life in a loving and gracious way, how has that affected you? Oh, it's affected me profoundly. I have one particular mentor who um, I still remember the way she corrected me was so gentle that I didn't actually realize it was a rebuke until after she was gone. And I was thinking about it and I was like, oh my goodness, she literally corrected me for this particular behavior in my marriage. Um, she spoke into it and she said, I just want to give you some advice. And, and, and then, you know, we went on with the conversation and after she left, I realized, oh my goodness, she <laughs> totally pointed out this major issue in my marriage. And that really showed me the power of relationship and gentleness and restoration now she could have just been quiet. She's not someone who likes to correct people. Um, she could have not said anything, but she chose to say something. And it actually was a pivotal point in my marriage and changing how I looked at my husband and communicated with him. So when you're following the Lord's leading in this, I do think fruit is always born in someone's life. So you and I, we met on Instagram 
which is such a funny platform to like quote unquote meet people on. I know. <laughs> and like you said, you know, you can't you can't really know someone from the internet. But what I've really enjoyed is just all that you put out and what you talk about. What I've seen in my perspective is that in your own life, something that I found interesting and really refreshing about you is that you don't assess other Christians' ministries and work, especially those who are in the limelight. And what I find very interesting is you don't call out false teachers. And so lots of Christians would argue, especially that the latter is extremely important. So why have you found it to be the opposite? Or why don't you make a point to call out false teachers and share thoughts on others' ministries? Well, um, I let me first say that I would actually really enjoy calling out false teachers. (laughs) My flesh would so enjoy to be able to say, this is how it is. That's my bent. But what I have realized is that from from observing patterns in the people I've been called a disciple is that the people I'm serving don't need to be given these pat answers or told, don't follow this list of people. What they need is to be taught how to think biblically. Because if they can think biblically on their own, and if they can follow the Holy Spirit's leading in their life, they will not need me. They will not be dependent on me to tell them who a false teacher is. They will know it all on their own. They will have a question. They'll say, that doesn't sit right with me. And so though I do believe there are some false teachers in the church today and some who parade as orthodox teachers, people that are trusted, um, I have decided through the Lord's conviction that it is more fruitful for me to disciple people into a strong faith that can recognize flawed theology than to simply tell them what to think. What would you say is the difference between assessing other Christians' ministries and then simply just putting out your opinion or commenting? Like, you know, we just talked about the Ravi Zacharias scandal that that broke and all that that's happening with that. And then there's been things a lot of people will talk about what's going on with Bethel or what has gone on there in the past. And some people feel like it's really important. Some people just want to talk about it because of just how interesting some of these situations that happen or arise are. How do you come to the place where you're like, okay, I am going to talk about this and I am going to share this and then I'm not going to share this? It's very much a prayerful process. So for instance, I did talk about um, the raise up olive situation that happened at Bethel. I think it's a year and a half or so now a young girl passed away and Bethel prayed for resurrection for six days. I believe it was. I did talk about that because my audience was extremely confused. Many of them were very grieved, um, who, those who had lost children and felt like they had failed their children. So in that sense, I prayed about that for quite a few days, and then I did decide to talk about it. But what I won't do is is analyze Bethel as an organization or analyze, um, I don't know, Beth Moore or, or the Gospel Coalition. I'm not going to sit and analyze them as an organization when I know that there are godly believers in those organizations. Um, do I agree with everything they do? No. Are there maybe false teachers in some of these places? 
possibly. Um, sometimes yes, depending on which organization it is or what pastor, church, etc. But there are also people in those places who most likely are genuine believers and are somewhere in their walk that I don't know. And so what I think through is how can I, I will talk about what the Lord leads me to talk about. And so sometimes that offends people. That's just how it is. But I also won't make a practice of just making broad sweeping statements about an entire church or an entire organization when there are people in those places who need to be discipled and who need to be reached um, or who are strong believers and are maybe trying to make a difference there. There's a lot that we just don't know. Um, and so we can concentrate on the theology that you know is important. I still educate on that, but I do think that there's an element of us against them on some of these issues. And the reality is if they affirm the core doctrines of the church, they're your brothers and sisters. So we need to remember that when we're talking about them. So correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm just getting from all that you've said so far is participating in biblical judgment really becomes a spiritual practice because there is so much pause that needs to take place before we step into it and so much communion with God in the spirit and saying, hey, is this something you're calling me to? Is there something I'm not seeing? I guess I'm just wondering if that's true, how do how do we work that into our lives? Because for me, I'm like, oh, I see this. I don't like it. So I'm going to say something. <laughs> you know, um, I love that you called it a spiritual practice because I, I truly think that's the best way to describe it. Um, alongside of things like fasting and silence and prayer of just seeking the Lord's face and asking him to lead us. And I think something that helps me, who also would like to jump on and have something to say about most things, is God is not urgent. He's not in a rush about this stuff. The Holy Spirit is at work and I think the big danger for Christians who fall into a critical spirit, speaking from experience, is we start to downplay the power of the Holy Spirit's work and conviction. We start to act as if he's not up to anything, and it's up to us instead to make sure everybody knows and everybody hears, and you know we warn and sound the bell. But I really think that the Lord knows when the bell needs to be sounded, and when we need to be quiet, and that he is working in hearts all the meantime, so that when we walk in obedience and our voice is raised or an alarm is sounded, the hearts will be ready to hear it. So I'm I'm a four on the Enneagram. I am a middle child, and I grew up in the evangelical church in the 90s and early 2000s. And so for me, I'm like, I'm always very eager to just share my opinion. And so I've struggled with judgment and criticism. And so I know you kind of just touched on it, but do you have any encouragement for those of us who struggle with judging and criticizing others? And my my deepest question really is, how can I seek real heart change and not just a change of habit? Hmm. Well, I resonate with you on the natural bent. Um, 
I'm an Enneagram three and um, <laughs> which I think it's kind of known generally to be a little bit more judgmental and an oldest child. So probably even more judgy than you, Brenna. Um, <laughs> and I think what I've, I've really, um, I think first of all, the big thing is just keep submitting it to the Lord. Just ask the Lord, to help you because what I've realized is that I often judge wrongly. So unbiblical judgment or hypocritical, mean, critical spirit judgment. I judge wrongly when I am judging from a place of self-criticism. So I'm having a super high standard for myself, not seeing myself as a person under the grace of God. Instead, giving into a kind of works-based mentality that, well, I've done all these good things. And so look at this person over here on this third tier freedom issue. Why can't they, you know, pull themselves together? So when we give into criticizing and judging in an unbiblical way, it's often because we've forgotten the grace we're under. And so revisiting salvation and revisiting grace and what that looks like, I think really helps us be gracious to other people. And then looking at just being in the word and focusing on the character of God and, and who he is really reminds me of my dependence on him. And when I know that, and I recognize that weakness, I have so much more compassion for the growth of other people. Um, and so I think those practices of just praying through it, seeking the character of God and studying grace in the word helps change our hearts in ways that we just wouldn't be able to change ourselves. Before we end, you mentioned the book by Scott McKnight, A Church Called Tove. Is there any other resources that you found to be just helpful and encouraging when it comes to these subjects? I really admire, there are certain people who I admire how they go about leading in this space. You are one of them because you are very gracious. Another person who I greatly admire is Mike Winger, and he's a YouTube guy. He's not really on social media. But what I admire about Mike is he um, he talks about a lot of this stuff. He talks, he names names and things like that, but he does it in such a gracious and biblical way that he really helps um, bring a lot of different denominations and a lot of different Christians from all walks together around the gospel and around scripture. And so he's someone that I would always suggest as a resource if people want to go through very specific detailed reviews of certain topics. And how can people learn more about who you are and what you do? So the best way is either my website, which is FeliciaMasonheimer.com. Lots of blog posts there, tons of free resources on theology, et cetera. And then my podcast um, transcripts and show notes are there. My podcast is Verity with Felicia Masonheimer. Verity just means truth. So that's what that stands for. And then I'm on Instagram and also Facebook just under my name. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about Can I Say That? Our guests on the show or submit questions and participate in polls, please join us on Instagram at Can I Say That Show. We love interacting with our audience and hearing how this show has affected, changed, and challenged you in your own walk. So please join us.